Hello, everyone, and welcome to Close Readings. I'm your host, Kamran Javadizadeh, and uh, boy, am I thrilled to be making this call today because I am uh, the person I have on the other line is one of my oldest friends, one of my dearest friends, um, someone I love, and someone um, whom, if you don't know, I think you'll you'll see why I love over the course of the next hour. Our guest today is Eric Lindstrom. Um, Eric is a professor of English at the University of Vermont. And before I um, tell you all about his marvelous um, publications and accomplishments and so on, um, let me also mention that the poem that Eric and I will be talking about today is a poem called February um, by the great uh, 20th century American poet James Schuyler. This is um, one, of my, one of my most favorite poems. And I have, um, I fear, strong-armed my friend into talking with me about it. Um, <laughs> while the know, month the, was still on. It, yeah, while the month was still while it was, it's the shortest month, and while it was still on, um, we're squeezing it in. Um, we'll, we'll talk more about months and um, time and um, Skylar in a, in a minute. Um, but as a reminder, you can, you can find the text of the poem uh, through a link in the show notes. Um, if you want to be looking at it, you can also, um, look at, uh, the newsletter that comes out with, um, the episode for, uh, links to, uh, information about Eric, um, other, uh, links to things that come up during the episode. Um, but let me tell you, let me tell you more about Eric Lindstrom. Um, Eric is the author of two books. His, his first book was called Romantic Fiat. Demystification and Enchantment in Lyric Poetry. And that was published by Paul Grave in 2011. Um, and then more recently, Eric um, uh, was the author of a book called Jane Austen and Other Minds, Ordinary Language Philosophy in Literary Fiction, which was published by Cambridge University Press in 2022. Um, in addition to those two monographs, Eric has guest edited two collections of essays. The first, called Stanley Cavell and the Event of Romanticism, uh, which uh, came out with Romantic Circles in 2014. Um, and then um, a, a special issue of Essays in Romanticism, which is due out next month. Um, though I guess, you know, with podcasts, uh, you may be listening to this. Uh, at a time in the future when next month has already become your past. It's mm -hmm. all very confusing. In any case, a special issue of Essays in Romanticism due out in March 2023 called Ostensive Moments and the Romantic Arts, Essays in Honor of Paul Fry. Um, Paul Fry, it occurs to me, is um, a name that has come up before on this podcast. Uh, a, a teacher of mine, Eric's mentor, uh, uh, one of one of his um, most beloved teachers, um, and um, and so that's um, that's sure to be a very uh, important and um, uh, lovely special issue. Which yeah, I joyful can't wait to read. Yeah, joyful. Um, so, in addition to those books and those um, edited collections, um, Eric has also written many. Essays and articles, they've appeared in such journals as ELH, Studies in Romanticism, Criticism, Modern Philology, Modernism, Modernity. Um, if, uh, if you toil in our fields of literary academia, you'll recognize these journal titles as some of the most 
impressive and important and storied places for academic literary criticism that exist. Um, uh, I'm astounded at the um, productivity of my dear friend. Um, Eric's most recent article, uh, which is published and available open access at Literature Compass Online, is called Promethean Ethics and 19th Century Ecologies, and that was co-written with Kira Bram. Um, he's also completing a third book, uh, most relevant, I suppose, to our conversation today, called James Schuyler and the Poetics of Attention, Romanticism Inside Out. And then these, these words, which I am about to uh, speak into my microphone, come directly from Eric's email to me, most recent email to me. From the gleanings of that project, he's been assembling an uncreative, marginally scholarly commonplace called Now and Then, a poetics and commonplace of intermittence. And I love that. <laughs> I love that um, description of that project, which um, I think sounds like the kind of thing that we need more of in, in our world, things that are um, uncreative, <laughs> marginally scholarly. Um, it occurs to me that maybe this podcast is one such thing. Uh, but I've I've now alluded um, a couple of times to my friendship with Eric, and let me say just a word more about that because I think it will give you a flavor of um, uh, a taste of of the the person that we're about to um, be talking to. So Eric and I started graduate school together. We were in the same cohort of graduate students um, back now over twenty years ago. Um. And ours was a kind of unusually close and socially affable group of graduate students. I remember thinking back then, oh, everybody told me graduate school would be such a dark time. And um, it's so fun. Um, there were dark days, no doubt. But, um, but I am someone who just had the luck, I think, to meet some of my closest and dearest friends um, when I began my graduate study, Eric was one of them. Eric felt unusual to me and to us as a group, I think, of students in those days, in as much as more than was true of any one of us. He seemed to be someone whose life was just suffused with the study of literature. He arrived um, in the... in the fall of that year with what seemed to me like a sense of um, purpose and dedication to the course of study that we were all entering on that was um, kind of awe-inspiring to me. Um, and I don't, I don't mean when I say that his life was suffused by the study of literature that Eric um, didn't then or doesn't now have other interests um, or that he and I would only ever talk about literature or literary criticism of all things. Um, uh, no, that 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 was um, not not at all the case. Uh, but what I mean instead is that when Eric and I talked about, uh, well, we're both basketball fans, um, and uh, and when we would when we would talk about basketball, my uh, my beloved Los Angeles Lakers or Eric's intense. Um, passion at the time or fleeting <laughs> right not as home-based uh, fugitive for, passion that, that's right that's right for uh for alan iverson uh it 
it felt to me like we may as well have been talking about poetry. That is to talk with Eric about uh, about something like that was to be talking about poetry in some way. Um, you know, fast forward the clock uh, many years later, um, our topics have changed somewhat. Uh, if we're talking now about uh, Eric's daughters, who I think are by now we're recording late at night, um, so hopefully <laughs> they're cracking night- up. This is my nighttime voice. Um, Eric's daughters, um, or or mine, I think all of them by now asleep. Um, You know, we talk about them with the great love that parents have for their kids. But it also sounds not too dissimilar to me um, in talking to Eric um, about our children, um, not too dissimilar from talking about poetry. Uh, That is... uh, this is this is the mind of the um this is the way eric's mind works this is part of the great pleasure of being eric's friend um tonight as i say poetry is our is our real subject of course it's our direct subject and um you know eric and i both uh, neither of us back then uh, when we first met knew that we were interested in james schuyler i mean we weren't yet i don't think um, both of us sort of fell for Skyler uh, recently, within the last several years, few years. Um, and it's kind of curious and beautiful and interesting to me that that this has happened to us independently. And you know, we live far apart from each other now. We talk not as often as we should. Um, this was really an independent development in each of our lives. And we'd sort of tracked it happening to the other uh, from a distance. Um, this will be our first chance to have a real conversation about Skylar. Now, when I started the podcast, I knew, of course, I'd want to have Eric on at some point, And he, at some point, suggested to me, oh, maybe let's talk about Skylar. And then it occurred to me much more recently, within the last few days, to be honest. <laughs> I think it was Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> that, but we don't, um, we don't, that doesn't convey it. Dang it. <laughs> that's perfect. It, it occurred to me that... Um, we that if if we struck while the iron was hot, you know, as it were, we'd get a chance to talk about what is one of my favorite poems by Schuyler uh, in a way that felt topical and tied to the moment on the calendar when the podcast would come out. So if I if I play my cards right here, this uh, episode will be published essentially the day before the day that the poem memorializes in one way or another. Now, that may not be quite the right way to think about it, and I think that's an interesting question and one that we might address. But part of my reason for wanting to talk about this poem now is that it feels timely, uh, but maybe not timely in the way that word is normally used, timely in a way that Schuyler seems to manage um, to be in his poetry. And I'm interested in that. And, uh, you know, Eric said to me, well, you know, I'm not speaking for himself that he wasn't um, as inclined as it seemed I was to be to be quite so literal about dates and Skylar. I think there's a kind of pleasure in it. And I'm um, and I'm happy to play the literal straight man here to Eric's more interestingly figurative, nimble mind and lazy. Um, (laughs) So, well, uh, we'll hear the poem in a moment. But first, let me properly welcome Eric Lindstrom onto the podcast. Eric, it's late. How are you feeling? 
I'm, I'm feeling good. I'm, I'm with you. I'm with uh, James Schuyler's poetry, and it's a pleasure to hear your voice and to see you as uh, listeners at home uh, can't. It's always a delight to see Kamran, everybody. And <laughs> I want to say that, you know, just a lovely what you're doing here, and I hope our um, installment of it is just a lovely way to do critical work and special to me. It's an exciting way to do friendship. Um, so thank oh. you. Yeah. Well, gosh, that means a lot. Yeah, you know, it's, um, I don't know. I'm the kind of writer who, um, well, not nearly as productive as you are. And part of the struggle for me is that I, um, not that you don't do this, again, speaking just for myself, I am the kind of writer who can labor over each sentence, you know, trying to make it what, not that I succeed in this, but sort of crystalline and perfect and um, sounding just right. And have been. and of course, well, and of course that that way of thinking only gets at part of the pleasure I take in in um, reading poetry and thinking about poetry. It it misses all the beautiful stops and starts and false starts and wrong turns and self corrections that come and talk and. Um, you know, we get some of that in in the best classes that we're mm-hmm. in or that we teach um, in conversations that we have with friends. And I guess one goal of this project was to make that kind of thing available um, more broadly um, to the public. And um, I'm so thrilled to get to share um, to share the microphone, as it were, with you tonight, Eric. Thank you. Um, let's listen to James Schuyler read the poem. Um, it, it, uh, our our listeners might, you know, people who don't know Schuyler's work at all or well, um, listeners who were where you and I may have been, I don't know how many years back you'd need to go, five years ago or 10 years ago before we'd really turned to Schuyler ourselves. Um, for me, it's really more like three or four years, I'd, I'd say at this point, um, might, might benefit from hearing just a couple of dates and sort of having a, a couple of things in mind. So Schuyler was born in 1923. Mm-hmm. He seems to have written the poem that we're discussing today in 1954 or 55. So um, would have been in his very early thirties, let's say. Um, mm-hmm. Wouldn't publish the poem in book form until several years later. And and the recording that we're going to hear is from many years later, is from 1988. So, 34 years after he wrote it, he's he's reading it publicly. Um, and Schuyler, unlike the you know so many of the poets from his generation, poets that he was friends with, um, but also just um, U.S. poets more broadly, was not someone who was. Um, uh, fond of or comfortable with giving poetry readings, so the the recording that we're going to hear is from a is, is kind of a rare artifact, um, and is a recording of a famous uh, first public poetry reading that Schuyler gave very near the end of his life in 1988 um, at the Dia Art Foundation in New York City. Um, he was introduced on that occasion by John Ashbery, his lifelong uh, friend, Schuyler, like Ashbery, and um, like uh, Frank O'Hara, who 
has, is a poet who's been covered. Um, he, our first episode, right, with Brian Glavy on on O'Hara's having a Coke with you. It was great. Um, oh, well, thanks. And um, and Kenneth Coke. These these four poets, and then others, many others besides, form the core of what is often referred to now as the New York School of Poets. Um, maybe we'll have occasion to talk about how Schuyler does and doesn't fit into that group in a moment. But so, right, this was a great, um, this, this public, this reading was a great, um, public coming out very near the end of his life and towards the, um, end of a, of a, um, long and interesting career, um, for Schuyler. Um, and, uh, and I'll make a link available, um, so that people can listen to the whole reading. Um, and I highly recommend that you do, I'll make a link available um, in the show notes or or with the newsletter as well. But let's listen to Schuyler read, and then we'll talk about the poem. Here's James Schuyler. February. A chimney breathing a little smoke. The sun I can't see making a bit of pink I can't quite see in the blue. The pink of five tulips at 5 p.m. on the day before March 1st. The green of the tulip stems and leaves, like something I can't remember, finding a jack in the pulpit a long time ago and far away. Why, it was December then, and the sun was on the sea by the temples we'd gone to see. One green wave moved in the violet sea, like the UN building on big evenings, green and wet while the sky turns violet. A few almond trees had a few flowers, like a few snowflakes out of the blue looking pink and light. A gray hush in which the boxy trucks roll up 2nd Avenue into the sky. They're just going over the hill. The green leaves of the tulips on my desk, like grass light on, on flesh, and a green copper steeple and streaks of cloud beginning to glow. I can't get over how it all works in together, like a woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, jogging her baby in her arms. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? I can see the little fists and the rocking horse motion of her breasts. It's getting grayer and gold and chilly. Two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips. It's the shape of the tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. It's a day like any other. Eric, um, I love listening to Skylar Rita's poems. And I wonder if you could just share a thought or two about what it's like for you to listen to this poet read. I love listening to Skylar read. Um, he, he, he's really pleasing to me. And, and that's not an even though, but it's in recognition of a kind of gruffness in his voice. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, this is three years before you know, he died in 91. You maybe can hear that he's had dental work. I mean, you, 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 more importantly, you, you feel a body 
that has lived mm. and he kind of aspirates the poem in a way where, you know, not to overdo it, but uh, it's embodied, it's measured. Um, mm. It's an informal reading style, but it's one that I think knows the measure of the poem. Um, and it's wonderful to have the pen sound archive of Schuyler readings. Just listen to yeah. all of them. Um, yeah, those are a few of my thoughts. Yeah. <clears throat> um you, when when you um, make that remark, Eric, about the measure of the poem, um, you know my ears prick up a bit, and I'm curious about what that term means for you. I mean, in in a in a moment, obviously, we will want to dive in and work our way through the poem. You know, start at something like its beginning and end at something like its ending. Uh, but but you know, it also maybe you are like me in this way. I don't know. I don't think we've had this particular conversation before where, you know, I, I do think that I'm, I have become or have always been the kind of reader who looks at a page that a poem is on and feels like I know something about it. You know, I, I know something about it even before I've begun to read it. Hmm. Um, Maybe this is one of the ways in which a poem can be a little bit like a painting, which I know is an interest of yours, the, and 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 an interest of yours with respect to Schuyler more generally. Um, yeah. How you know how poems, and and of course, is a preoccupation of New York School um, yeah. poetry more broadly. But um, you can, you know, you can do with a poem what you can't do with a novel, which is to look at all of it at once if it's short enough. I guess anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, so for for um, listeners to the podcast, Eric, that either don't know Schuyler's work well at all um, or, you know, happen not to be looking at the text as we talk about it, mm-hmm. what what um, what impressions of itself does it give to you just at a glance on the page? And maybe how does that um, how does that impression fit in? to what Schuyler's poems can look like more generally. You know, it strikes me that he's a poet who writes some poems that are very skinny and yeah, some poems that are very fat. Skinny uh, and fat, it's, it's an Eve Sedgwick kind of, kind of thing, not to bring in theory yeah. and close readings. But yeah, The Mighty Line, which the later long poems especially, uh, he said, were only sort of contained by the typewriter and right. uh, our Whitman-esque. And then the skinny. Uh, this poem is in between the, the two, isn't it? It's mm-hmm. not one of his skinny poems. Like he's got one called Buttered Greens, I think, where you barely get more than two words per line. It's in between. And maybe we can talk more about that. Um, this is a kind of medium-sized Schuyler poem. Yeah. Um, my, my feeling as much about the measure um, was about temporality. Um mm. He's often praised for the kind of, not sublimity necessarily, but the just rightness, you know, capturing a quintessence that seems ordinary that another person might not see or, or um, attend to and that another poet might not get just as right. Yeah. And this is a kind of medium-sized Schuyler poem, which in that mm. way makes it um, wonderful to kind of pull out if we're going to have one discussion of his work. Um, he's been compared in some ways to an almost, he never invokes this, but an almost kind of Zen like or Buddhist kind of, um, 
writer who who captures time in his poetry. And mm. I often picture Schuyler, even though his writing is very scribbly, uh, he calls it scribbles, as mm-hmm. almost writing like calligraphy. You know, the line drops and you have a certain yeah. kind of image of grace with how he lineates. Mm. And that's kind of what I meant by measure, a sense of uh-huh. the poem taking time and being a container of time, but not in a way that sort of masters it, um, rather in a way that transpires the time of the poem and the time in the poem transpire together. Mm. Like the time of, of the enunciation of the poem and the time of the, the text um, sort uh-huh. of coming together in some way. And the time passing in the poem. One of the things mm. that interests me in this that we'll, I, I'm sure, get to later, um, it's really indicative of a Schuyler poem, but is handled in a way that's sort of muted here and, you know, um, uh, refulgent here. Things happen in Schuyler's poetry. So mm. I, I work on romantic poetry. One of the, mostly I'm working on Schuyler. Mm. Um spontaneity is a thing of course that the new right. york school have and the romantics have and and things happen in schuyler's poetry and the poem becomes a way of quicksilver like responding in time to that mm. all, all you know <clears throat> let let's look at the first few lines of this poem because i think they might give us a kind of um uh, testing ground for some of the ideas that you've just been describing and i'll read the first uh what is it uh six lines of of the poem again so we can have them fresh well first the title february and then a chimney breathing a little smoke the sun i can't see making a bit of pink i can't quite see in the blue the pink of five tulips at 5 p.m on the day before march 1st so Uh Time is present here, and maybe it's not the kind of time that you were, or the, the sort of sense of temporality that you were just describing, but it, it is present. Are things happening here? I don't know. What yeah. do you, you know, talk, talk to us yeah. about these first few lines, Eric. Yeah. Uh, Skylar's great at, you know, process and um, gerunds and ING verbs. And here you get the chimney breathing. Yeah. You know, so the respiration is given over to a, a non-human thing, an object. Um, uh, though it's you know, it's, though it's um, though it's exhaling something yeah. that humans have been Smoke. doing, right? Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. This is an Anthropocene coal poem, but I mean, you you know, it's it's winter, right? The chimney's uh, the chimney's right. doing work. That verb that comes up later, and mm-hmm. and breathing, uh, great kind of word, of course, for poetic, not even voice yet, just respiration. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that. There's that sense of um, taking in and giving out and letting out that I think is indicative of Schuyler. He doesn't um, so much uh, corral and form in that way as he he takes in and lets it back out, and that's what breathing does. Um, the, the title, of course, too, right? Like Schuyler mm. is kind of famous for date poems. Right. Um, almost like each date is its own birthday and he's celebrating that. So he's got, you know, hmm. December 28th, 1974 or June 30th, 1974. He has two or three mm. poems that are just the month in the same collection, Freely Espousing. There's a great poem, December. 
But, mm-hmm. you know, in December, you kind of cover the whole month, right? It's the holiday season. <laughs> and in that poem, he talks about shopping at Bonwit Teller in New York right. City, you know, midterm. Right. February is a different uh, month to take in whole. He's writing at the very end of February, whenever that is. Yeah. Um, the day before March 1st. So it could it, it could be a leap year. And that is interesting. And then also, like, I've been noticing this as a human lately. Um, the end of February is very different from the beginning. The change yeah. in the light becomes strong. Yeah. I mean, in New York, I'm in Vermont. Um, you feel a kind of return of light in the late afternoon in late February. And he's writing a poem where February is about to leave. So he's celebrating February um, upon its exit and not as I think most of us would do February time, hastening its end, right? Most of us Mm. just want to get through certainly after whatever we do to get through Valentine's day, we just (laughs) want to get through the back end of February. Right. And Skyler's tarrying with it. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting, right? Because you would think, given the poem's title, that it would... And given Sky, what's, what you just said about Skyler's propensity to n- not just place a poem in a month, but to give it a date, yeah. um, you would think that a poem called February... I mean, it feels a little odd that that the poem itself, that the month that's named in the poem is March, actually, yeah, right? right. Um, even great. though we're not there yet, you know. Yeah. Um, and, March first. Right, and I think that there must be, and and well, and there's an hour, the pink of five tulips at five p.m. on the day mm-hmm. before March first. So this uh, is I mean, the it, last light of February. Right, and it must be significant that. February is the one month that has an unstable number of days. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, I know we could. So uh, I've seen it written that the, the, the people think the poem was written in 1954. And so that sounds like it might be a leap year, but actually it wasn't. That's not a leap year. Um, 52 and 56 were. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was written in '55. You were suggesting, but in any case, it seems not yeah, to be a leap year. But the poem, but, but the poem doesn't give that away, essential. right? And it seems conspicuous to say the day before, you know, the day before March first, um, in a month where that doesn't settle what the date is. So maybe that mm-hmm. I don't know. Does that, on the one hand, we're naming the hour and we're being very precise about the day. And yeah, on the like other that. hand, we're what, like exposing the um, indeterminacy of our way of accounting for the passage of time? There's a bunch of great things in that. Um, Schuyler writes these exact words in a, in a later poem. He refuses a compliment. He says, a clunkhead said to me, your poems are growing mm-hmm. more open. I don't want to be more open, but to see mm-hmm. and say things as they are, right? And that's a wonderful phrase. It makes you think maybe of, um, you know, no ideas, but in things. But but in Schuyler, things allow a kind of indeterminacy. They're not the sort of modernist, red Mm -hmm. wheelbarrow, kind of hieratic, clear-edged object, usually, although these tulips are pretty clear-edged. They allow indeterminacy. And so, like, in general, the play in Schuyler between a kind of, um, a kind of, uh, 
direct relationship to fact and naming and and description. He's a very descriptive poet, right? Right. Um, which is post-romantic poetry that's treated pejoratively. And Schuyler mm-hmm. is a descriptive poet, but like mm-hmm. that fulsomeness about just naming things literally coexists with indeterminacy in a way that is often uh, striking in his work. And February, I think, kind of brings that out at the level of a month. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, I, but maybe it's, it's maybe also, oh, sorry, go ahead. First well, you, it's and then always I have a tricky. Yeah. I, yeah, my only thought is like reading Schuyler, close reading, writing on Schuyler, you're drawn to say more and think more, but you don't want to overwork it. That verb uh-huh. is critical to this poem. But he yeah. is, Douglas Crace is the great writer and critic of Schuyler's uh, strong relationship, in particular to American transcendentalist thinkers, and to, you know, really like moral, um, you know, moral wi- wisdom and, and uh, rightness in odd ways. And so Emerson, I think, comes up here. There's this great line in experience, I think it is, where Emerson says, and forgive me for having a note on this, some heavenly days must be intercalated somewhere mm. uh, to give us a sense of heaven in our quotidian lives. Huh. We need to have some day that doesn't belong on the calendar. And if you're writing a poem about that, you drop it in the indeterminate day of February yeah, 29th yeah. or right. not. You know, it could just be that yeah. Schuyler's point is that you don't need that leap year to make this the day. It's a uh-huh. day like any other, but it's the day. Right. And right. I, that makes this poem quite, I think, ambitious in its relationship to how the ordinary and, you know, the exceptional um, mm-hmm. and beyond that, something more, um, you know, potentially quietly glorious can yeah. happen. Um, that That's great. I, I, um, I, I, what what I was going to say was, you know, about the, um, you know, as when you, as you describe Schuyler as a descriptive poet, which I think is right. I mean, and in, and in this way, though maybe not in others, um, it makes sense to me that I love Schuyler so much because you know the other poet that I love so much, who's more or less contemporary with him, this, she's a bit older, is Elizabeth Bishop. You know, who's often also called the descriptive poet. Now, maybe mm-hmm. description works differently in the two Uh of them. But one thing I'm noticing in the opening lines of this poem, and I feel as though I I hear it elsewhere in Schuyler, I know I see it elsewhere in Schuyler, is on the one hand, he seems to, you know, he's interested in describing the colors of things. But his palette seems awfully um, limited or something here. You know, it's um, the -hmm. sun I can't see making a bit of pink. I can't quite see in the blue, the pink of five tulips. You know, it's not... These aren't, these are, um, these are names for colors that are on your like starter set of Crayola crayons. You know, they're not, he's not reaching for exotic colors yeah. or repeating rather than any, reaching. That's right. Yeah. So, um, and it's, and, and here it's also, I mean, he twice in the first six lines, he's telling us what he can't see. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I, I thought about that, you know, once I, uh, got this assignment and and turned toward it. And, you know, I found myself almost trying to come up with smart readings of 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 why he can't see, you know, like we can't mm-hmm. look at the sun, right? Yeah. <laughs> like you can't look at it directly. Um, 
Well, I think here also he's looking out the window and it's hidden behind a building or yeah, something. Exactly. You know? Yeah, that's, right. that's what I yeah. mean. Like, I think yeah. it's just a kind of contingent kind of fact there. Yeah. Um, imagination always can't quite see or can't quite close determinately the link between, you know, perception and like the object. And that's what gives it its frisson and friction. Um, it makes me think of Stevens, right? Like make the visible a little hard to see while ah, Stevens, yeah. but Schuyler wouldn't make anything like he's the poet who lets things happen and be, um, but yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I mean, I, the palette of this poem is gray yeah. and it is a color poem, but colors only stand off against that gray, the wonderful changing gray that somehow later becomes gold and chilly. Um, or the 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 gray hush, which is the synesthesia mm. of gray. So it's a pastel palette. Mm. Um, and in mm. terms of painting, if I can go there, it's not an expertise of mine, but like one has to talk about it with Schuyler. He reviewed painting and other arts for Art News. Mm-hmm. I think the apartment where this takes place, although he doesn't tout it at all, is the one he shared with Frank O'Hara in the 1950s mm-hmm. on 49th Street. Um, but the painters he most loved were figural, muted painters like Fairfield Porter and Jane Freilicher mm-hmm. um, that don't overwhelm you with their avant-garde sensibilities or always mm-hmm. with color. I mean, Porter mm-hmm. often painted in a kind of pastel palette too, and you see that on the cover of some of his books. Right. So, Skylar books. Yeah, yeah. Um, the, um, the, the sense in which the poem is rooted well, perhaps um, our ability to, as we as we've been saying, our ability to plant ourselves on a particular date at a particular time is limited, or that we're sort of frustrated as we attempt to do that. But nevertheless, the poem seems to be, you know, time time stamped for us at its beginning, but then almost immediately um, that sense of um, time gives way to a memory that takes us to another time and, and I guess another place, which is less determinate. Yeah. yeah. Why it was December then. Um, sorry, but I'm skipping actually the green something of the tulip stems and leaves, like something I can't remember finding a Jack in the, in the pulpit, which is yeah. a, a kind of a, what a flower or plant, right? Um, yeah. It's a yeah. very green plant that has yeah. a bit like a tulip, kind of a pugnacious stem, but right. of course it's growing in the ground and not in a, in a uh, indoor pot. And then it has like a, a, a kind of a hood uh-huh. and the flower pops up out of it. So the name comes from kind of the old image of like a preacher in a pulpit up right, and kind of looming over. Ah, uh, yeah, that's great. Yeah, that's great. So, um, so, so then, you know, if, if we're, um, if, if the beginning of the poem puts us in the place of the poet who's maybe looking out of his window and making things out and not making things out, he can't see the sun, but he can see the light the sun makes and so on. Yeah. Then suddenly we're transported back to a different place and time and a memory that's um, present in this poem because it gives a, what a, a, a kind of um, point of comparison to the, to the observations that are being made now. And what do you make of that? embedded kind of memory in this poem yeah, or at great. this moment in this poem, Eric. Yeah. The, the entree of that too, through like something I can't remember. And in this regard, it's Wordsworthian, you know, Wordsworth 
uh, famously says in Tintern Abbey, you know, the famous unremembered, famous unremembered acts of kindness and of love. Like he's activated by something that he can't um, fully remember, but then it's so vivid. Um, The like is interesting. You know, Mm -hmm. Schuyler is not a poet of metaphor in the same way that He's a descriptive poet. He doesn't often use metaphor. And when he uses like, and I expect we'll come back to this with Mm -hmm. like a woman who Mm -hmm. just came to her window, he often has this very low grade distinction between whether that like is a simile and introduces a kind of figural register or whether it's another kind of association, whether it's just additive, um, you know, his poetics is very horizontal. So even though here you definitely got a moment of kind of recollection um, from another place far off, I think we know uh, from sources and from, I think, Andrew Epstein's blog, Locus Solus, that he's remembering Italy. I think it's Palermo. And he had gone there on a trip uh, with, I think, mm. his, his lover, the pianist, Arthur Gold. Um, he had been to Italy once before with, uh, in the company mostly with Auden and Chester Kalman, um, so pretty famous literary company. But this was a later trip. And this is a cheat, especially in a close reading podcast, but, but Epstein, you can really cheat. Helpfully, yeah, yeah. Epstein really helpfully says in a letter that you and I may want to look at in a bit confirms sure. that Schuyler had gone to Italy and had come back relatively recently. The trip was like December, January. Now it's February. And he's trying to write a poem. He says in this letter, um, "Yeah, tell said, us. Sorry, let's back up for a second. Tell us because it's such a fascinating letter. So, the letter that Eric, maybe I can ask him to read a bit from it to us. Um, it's collected in a volume called Just the Thing: Selected Letters of James Schuyler, nineteen fifty-one to nineteen ninety-one, um, which I can I can provide a link to." And it seems as though a woman about whom we know nothing, really, at least the editor of the volume of Schuyler's letters attests to knowing nothing about her, must have written him a letter with comments and questions about this poem that Schuyler um, responded to at great length, except maybe didn't, because I notice also in the back of the book that the letter was found among John Ashbery's papers and and it wasn't signed, signed, which suggests it was never sent, which is fascinating. All of which is fascinating. Because he says, I don't respond to fan mail, which is a fascinating thing for Schuyler to say, because I don't think he was getting, getting a a wonderful poet, but you had to know him. And however, I liked your letter. Yeah. Okay. So, so read us, read us maybe just a passage or two. Okay from from the letter in because Schuyler, you know, sort of goes on the record, as it were, about the genesis of the poem and, yeah, and some of what's oracle, interesting to him about it. The oracle speaks. The oracle speaks, that's right. I'm trying to pick just the best bits, but it is a wonderful letter. And even the fact that it's to a Miss Beatty in Vancouver really yeah. makes it specific. Yeah. Um so asking about intention, Miss Beatty wants him to talk about religious intention and he's resisting that. However, intention needn't enter in. And if the reader sees things in a religious way and the work is dogmatically acceptable, then I don't see why it should not be interpreted in that way. I'll I'll move on. Um, He says, I really can't see that purification comes into it. (laughs) Somebody's been reading T.S. Eliot, late T.S. Eliot, and wants to read Schuyler like that. Uh, Part of the point would seem to be that junk, like the trucks, 
and the lions and things that matter like flowers, the sea, a mother and her baby in an ascending scale of value. That's like fascinating. He's creating a great chain yeah. of being in this poem. I hadn't thought that. Yeah. Have each its place. And that it is the world in its impurity, which is so very beautiful and acceptable, if only because one has so little choice. That's really interesting in the larger contour of Schuyler's life, where he often had little choice over his rooms. And I'll just read a little bit on the next page. Yeah, sure. You know, he he gives the evidence that I was just bringing up. It was late February, and I had recently returned from Europe, etc., and names all these specific places in Palermo. Um you knew that it was a different place because he's talking about temples. <laughs> yeah, right. And and talking about all the temples we'd gone to see. And almond trees with their blossoms that are compared, I think, here figuratively to snow, not the actual snow that's in New York City, yeah. but the snow that would be a figure of imagination in Italy. And then he ends, and this is the part that I think is just really a pearl. Um, Back in the letter, you mean? Yeah. Yes, the last two short paragraphs of the letter. I'll just read to close. Sure. It seems to me that readers sometimes make the genesis of a poem more mysterious than it is. By that, I perhaps mean that they think of it as something outside their own experience. Often a poem happens to the writer in exactly the same way that it happens to someone who reads it. Hmm. So again, that kind of openness, which I was trying to suggest by saying there's just a super low gradient in terms of the privileges of sort of figuration and access in a Schuyler poem. Um, it makes yeah. me think of another writer who amazingly evoked his poetry as like stepping into a puddle that is almost the same temperature as the day, <laughs> the air <laughs> of the day. You know, it's this deliciousness of a minimal gradient of difference. And then getting yeah. back to the letter, um, as for stimuli, I hope you won't perceive a similar response. He's quoting the letter writer, Miss Beatty. In this instance, since what stimulated me to write it was the apathy following on the disappointment of a wasted day. Now that's um, a signal thing too. And then he ends, however, what seemed like waste then may have been a warming up. Who knows? Not me. Yeah. You know, it's funny is that (laughs) um, this is um, not to get totally meta and peek behind the curtain here. But Eric and I had one or two false starts in trying to get this recording off the ground, you know, and we were sort of frustrated. We were having internet connection difficulties. A warming up. Yeah, maybe that was all just a warming up. You know, part of what um, so interests, I mean, you've picked some of my favorite moments in the letter to read, Eric, but, you know, part of what might be useful to have in mind, too, is that Schuyler describes in the letter wanting to write one kind of poem and failing sort of to do so. And as he was struggling with this, he sort of looked out the window Mm -hmm. and saw, oh, this ordinary day, not, not the, not the European day that I'm trying to evoke through memory, but the the ordinary day before me is also worthy of my attention or is, has something in it for me. Yeah. And, and to bring it back to the poem for, for a moment, you know, when that memory comes up, he says, so, why, it was December then, and the sun was on the sea by the temples we'd gone to see. Mm-hmm. One green wave moved in the violent sea, like the UN building on big evenings, green <laughs> and wet while the sky turns violet. So I just want to observe a couple of things. For one thing, three consecutive lines end with the the sound, though not the word, sea. So 
The sun was on the sea, S-E-A, by the temples we'd gone to see, S-E-E. One mm. green wave moved in the violet sea, S-E-A again. So C, C, C. Um, that's, um, there's something kind of dizzying about that. And it's establishing, um, <clears throat> it's sort of planting a stake for me on the right-hand side of the margin that's like t- cinching all of these places together. But we're moving back yeah. and forth. We are. Um, and, and so, right. So he's in New York looking out the window and remembering this trip to Europe. And then he's saying that the sea there in Mm -hmm. Europe reminded him a wave in that sea reminded him of the UN building, right? It's like figure and ground keep switching places in a way. Yeah. 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 I think that that's exactly what's happening. And, he again, I think he often does that. It, 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 it makes me think of his background, his 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 um, coextensive interest in painting, right? If you're looking at a painting, abstract or not, and just trying to describe it, you yeah. know, to see and say things as they are, right? You're you're likely to describe the surface of it, and this gets at kind of theoretical debates we're having in our humanities about what is surface and how to engage in ways that are less about like depth and so forth. But like, if you're looking at a painting and describing the surface, you're, you're apt to use metaphor right away. That's, that's the initial experience of describing a figural work. Now that's figural, you know, painting um, that Schuyler's looking at, but he's using it in terms of rhetorical and grammatical figures. And he often describes things um, in ways that blur metaphor and literal. He's got a later poem where he's describing a change of weather. Mm-hmm. It's uh, his poem, The Morning of the Poem. And mm-hmm. Schuyler's a gay man, so this is a great queer moment where he describes a change of weather in nor- northern New York like a gray-haired, attractive man striding through the supermarket. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how he introduces this almost like epic simile about a change of weather but yeah. then in the poem, Schuyler, there's no point using like the poetic right. speaker as a right. crutch, uh, cruises this guy. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the metaphor. But you're like, no, like that was his life. You know, that was the literal. Uh-huh. So here I think what you get is this sense of the, the merge of these levels. So like if the story is the basis of the poem, right, he meant to write about Italy, but was in a sense like translucently, wonderfully distracted by actual New York. But then in the poem, he's writing about New York, but in a sense is sort of distracted by Italy and ends up, ends up writing about the Italy that he wasn't able to get in the previous kind of more uh, formally conceived poem. So it's right. So, 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 you know, you might think ordinarily in a poem that, um, all right, you have the thing you're describing and then figurative language refers to a kind of different order of reality and that those two worlds don't actually overlap if what you're doing is using metaphor, maybe in particular. Right. Right. right? That that's sort of like, uh, sorry, I'm going to use a maybe a jargony sounding word here, but ontologically, sort of like at the level of their reality being they that they're being right they exist in two different places right yeah if i say even in a simile if i say oh my love is like a red red rose 
you know, on the one hand, I've got, I understand that what I'm describing here is this woman I love and the red, red rose is sort of present in the poem, but not in the same room as the woman. Yeah, Not like uh, the UN building. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and here it's as though, um, you know, when, um, like, I love what you said earlier about the, the kind of ambiguity of the word like, which can, it's which seems to just put things to, side by side, sort of cheek by jowl. And then they, and then they switch places and kind of flow into each other. They have this flow and commerce. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So that not to jump ahead, but we may, we, yeah, we may we be can there. jump a little. I can't, you know, the lines where this, you realize that this is something like, you know, uh, a revelation. I can't get over how it all works in together. Like, that word, like a woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, jogging her baby in her arms. So I think there's a lot to say about that. I mean, I can't get over is of course a statement of wonder. Um, it's also a statement that like he can't get over it. So one thing that attracts me about Skylar being the kind of human that I am is that he's not anti-intellectual, but he's open to the truth of the notion that the things that move us most might not be reduced to like intellection. And so he's just saying, I can't get over it. You know, uh, right. it's a simple thing that's, um, mysterious and powerful yeah. and the like there, right. Um, like mm-hmm. a woman who just came to her window. Well, is that a simile? Uh, he seems to sort of just be saying, and also, or into the scene, which she's just said is the all that works in together. There's this other supplement for me there. Wo- the, yeah. Sorry. The like there is almost like, um, a for example. Exactly. But it's I a for ex- example. I can't get over how it all works in together. Like take, for instance, the woman who just came to her window. But she just came to her window. Right. So I, I'm tempted to read it as this assemblage. I think that's a word that's good for this poem because mm. things are all different levels, right? Like to get to the end, the dust, the shape, the water, the day, those are yeah. all conceptually different levels those all somehow make this refulgent assemblage that is just the all that works in together. Yeah. But then, then a line right after that, I think something else comes into the frame. It's the woman who just came to her window and, and that is additive, you know, it's not Uh elevating, it's additive. Um, and yeah, it's a, for example, it's not a simile. Yeah. But miss, so maybe it's worth, um, backing up slightly and then, arriving again at, at those at, at those crucial lines yeah because you know we have been treating the i can't get over how it all works in together as um addressing what follows those lines but they may just as plausibly address what immediately precedes them mm-hmm. um so a gray hush in which the boxy trucks roll up Second Avenue into the sky. I love mm-hmm. that. I just love that um, because it's like the most ordinary kind of description of traffic moving up Second Avenue. Which you know, if yeah. you're right, and I think you are about where exactly Skyler is in Manhattan here, you know, Second Avenue does have a kind of gradient to it there. So from his vantage, it might look like you know the trucks are moving up. Um, yeah. Um, uh, the avenue and and just sort of disappearing. Um, the r- th- they're just line break going over the hill, right? And there's this lovely <laughs> kind of mimetic moment where enjambment is doing 
a, a, a kind of thing like sure. um, the trucks are. You have to look over the line to see. Yeah. The green leaves of the tulips on my desk, like, there it is, like grass light grass on light. flesh. What an image that is. Wow. What is grass light? I don't know. I mean, I'm back to, um, I keep referring to poems that we've had on the podcast already. I'm back to Marvell in the garden, like a green thought in a green, in a shade. green shade. Yeah. Um, I, I picture the Whitmanic loafing on the grass. Yeah, if that's you get better. Low, yeah, that's, the grass that's is, probably more right. It's semi-translucent, but you know, and it's flesh, of course, but like to call grass, it grass light. Like grass light on flesh yeah, and a great. green copper steeple. So that's a copper steeple that has tarnished or whatever, right? Or has yeah, patina. Um, yeah, has a pat- and, and he's changing of- his his perspective from yeah uh, from up high, right? He's I forget what floor they're on. Actually, yeah. I think it was yeah, whatever. I forget what floor they're on, but he's changing his angle of vision throughout the poem. Um, yeah, I actually to take a second because I know we don't have a lot of time. We have time. I'm not a New, I'm not a New I mean, Yorker. unless you don't have time. No, yeah. I do. I'm not yeah. a New Yorker, but I, you know, was just down after the pandemic for only, you know, the first or second time. And I feel like that description of Second Avenue is descriptively brilliant. As, as you're pointing out, like my sense of walking New York, which I love to do, is that walking north south is kind of like walking up a very low rise mountain. Like you're always walking uphill or downhill. <laughs> and then walking east west, it's sort of like there are big swells, almost like it's a sea, mm. and things mm. kind of disappear. And he's kind of capturing, well, the, the, of course, the nature of New York, right? This is a nature yeah. poem. It's an urban nature poem or right. urban eclogue. And even the boxy trucks are almost like the caravels of a heart crane poem, kind of I moving up and down. And of course, you know. I think others have pointed this out. Like this is a poem of description and maybe simile, or it right. invites you to think in terms of simile. But the boxy trucks are kind of a vehicle, right? That invites uh, metaphorical reflections in the most humdrum, humdrum way. Because what metaphor yeah. does is transport through the vehicle of trope. Well, with that in mind, um, I can't get over. Which also, sorry. So the. The full phrase is, I can't get over how it all works in together. That mm-hmm. in is interesting to me, but maybe come back to that. I can't mm-hmm. get over is, the, so the line break comes after the word over. Um, so that at least for the moment we have kind of isolated as a bit of language, I can't get over. I like how you uh, link that back to the hill. Yeah, well, that, but also, it you know, it reminds me of like, well, if the trucks are, you know, vehicles that are transporting you know, things, tenors, their own tenors from here, (laughs) from here to there. Mm -hmm. Skylar is doing work. Yeah. But Skylar is instead, you know, in his apartment and looking at things outside, but he's, um, he can't get over to what he sees, you know, like he, he's, um, he's stuck as an observer um, yes, writing a and, window poem, which he always does. Yeah, uh, what I yeah. see out the window poem. Yeah, but not. Um, but yeah, I feel like you're saying something. I feel like you're saying something as a concession. This is very Skylarian, as a as a modesty trope, which is in fact like a brilliant big insight. Which is that Skylar not getting over into the realm of metaphor is him at the very least establishing where he is as a poet, which is his great and kind of, you know, people have tried kind of 
um, impossible to repeat uh, feat. So that that Schuyler's quote unquote literalism of the imagination or scriptivism um, or his dwelling with the ready to hand there is maybe expressed as a failure, but that failure is wonderment. It's and, the poem. And maybe, I mean, you were the one who brought up Schuyler's, um, you know, queer, you know, the idea of the sort of queer poetics too. So I'm always struck here by, and especially the way he describes it in that letter as like the, um, the highest rung on the, um, you know, he said that what was the phrase he used? The, these are in ascending order of importance. I close my books, but that, that's yeah, no, it. that's that's close enough. It's amazing that he says that. I'm <laughs> well, the thing is shocked the, that he says that. The thing then at the top of that chain is the woman holding the baby, yeah. right? Which is um, also a scene he can't get over into. You know what I mean? It's like it's. Um, uh, yeah. it's, it's a scene of, um, reproduction or of, um, y- you know, um, of, of, um, generational futurity, um, or of, um, intergenerational, um, reproduction rather that is something he's observing, but apart from, mm-hmm something that he can't get over um, Mm -hmm. into, but that he also can't get over in the initial sense, which like I should just say the thing that I was claiming that was dependent on the line break coming after over, I think is an interesting, but secondary kind of reading. I I mean, I think that the primary sense of that line is like, yeah, I can't get over it. It's, it's wowing me or, you know, it's reducing me to, but um, he always uses idioms with this mm-hmm. kind of bivalency, like with the description in the first part of the poem, I, I noticed that he uses the phrase out of the blue looking pink in the light. Well, yeah. out of the blue there is actually, right. I think, used idiomatically, but it, it gains this, you know, richness. Meaning like and, out of nowhere, right? Yeah, or, and right. it gains a kind yeah. of wit because, uh, you know, you're expecting him to be describing a, a color palette. Uh, mm-hmm. So... I can't get over, you know, we would paraphrase mm-hmm. as, I don't know, it's inexpressibly wonderful to me. You, you can't mm-hmm. really say it better, but I, I think Skylar invites us to play with idioms with a kind of resourceful seriousness like it, you're doing. It also means um, I can't get over something means I'm stuck there, right? It means like I can't move past it. Yeah. W- when do we say we can't get over something? We can't get over you know, um, a first love, right. Uh, or a heartbreak or something, right. Yeah. Or you can't get over the loss of something. Um, that is, it's, it's a kind of, um, uh, stuckness we feel against our perception that time is moving along or wants us to be moving along, but we've, as it were, Mm-hmm. sort of gotten stuck wow. on something that we can't move past. So you're offering a reading or at least an attitude at this moment toward the poem where that's an impasse. And I, I think that's, I, you know, it's kind of a fascinating blindsiding read. I, I <laughs> sorry, no, no, no. I, I, I'm thinking of other lines in Skylar. I want to hold on. Cause I am a romantic. I am a romanticist because I am a romantic. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. Um, romantic is sort of to claim as much as you can um, and meet reality when it hits you in the face. Um, but like, 
he has a moment later, and I I think it's in the Crystal Lithium where he describes this is his first longish poem. It's not very long, like five pages, where he describes another such moment of wonderment. And the context is he's describing a petroleum slick kind of image, mm-hmm. and then says it's like the person you love saying the one thing um, that is uh, irreversible, uh, unanticipated, and then goes on doing the dishes. And and that <laughs> makes me vibe with what you're saying because it feels like it could be traumatic, like I can't get over impasse. But again, it has this quality of wonder, like there isn't anything further for a poem to get at is mm-hmm. my feeling that it is maybe not accelerating on or, or heightening on to anything further, but that there isn't anything more for a poem to process. The hardest thing is to process just that for what, for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but I certainly agree that the, the, the image of the woman with the baby jogging the baby in her arms is a really striking one. She's um, so far off. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? Yeah. So there's a distance. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reading I would want to try is that it's already all working in together and into yeah. that kind of magically. Another thing comes, but that's still part of the all. And that the woman with the baby is more of a supplement than a sort of necessity. And that gives a space where the kind of heteronormative reading that somehow he's out of that, uh, you know, picture is, is not the predominant one, Uh um, that it's an assemblage, right. And not a hierarchy, but that letter. Yeah. (laughs) We've read in evidence. Wow. I I also think of Stevens and I, I mean, I don't want to make this intertextual, but you know, in the roars of autumn, which is relatively recent, Stevens has Wallace. You mean recent to the composition of this poem? Yeah. Like 10 years before. Right. Uh, what is it? The mother's face, the purpose of the poem fills the room, he says. And if I'm thinking of that, because I I do feel like this poem is in dialogue with Stevens. Stevens says in his his great short, short poem, The Poems of Our Climate, uh, which is a poem about the days of winter when the afternoons When afternoons uh, return. And then he says, one desires so much more. Well, Schuyler, I think, is saying, you know, this is is enough. And and, uh, and this and is so, enough. Yeah, this is enough. And he's, you know, the, the Stevens poem I just referenced, the poems of our climate, also starts famously with an image of flowers and a very kind of pink uh, carnations. Yeah, yeah, a very kind of still life image, which is resonant with this poem. But then, if that is something we can play with, this isn't the mother's face. The purpose of the poem filling the room. It's the silhouette. It's at a distance it's kind of handled in a painterly way. And the relationship is not one that at least doesn't tempt me to a kind of psychoanalytical or other reading, but is more like a painterly compositional reading where the mother jogging the baby become an assemblage along with all these other things, which are non-human, different in scale, different in their ontology. Two dog-sized um, lions face each other at the corners of a roof. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dog-sized yeah. lions, and even the light. The baby. We think yeah. of babies as healthy and pink, and here it's like, is it the light that makes the baby pink? Uh-huh. So the baby's participating in the poem's subject matter of the quality of light. Yeah. Rather than in like biological human, you know, whatever. Right. 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 It's like the baby's part- conditioned by the quality of the light, just Sorry, like everything yeah, else. 
Yeah, right. Like the tulips are or like yeah. like anything else's. So you've written something that <clears throat> I'm not going to um, try to quote it precisely here, but I, I want to get the gist of the idea because I think it's relevant to this moment, which is that um, um, Schuyler is an ekphrastic poet. So that's a term for those who don't know it, ekphrasis or um, would be the noun and, and, and you can refer to an ekphrastic poet or an ekphrastic poem. An ekphrastic poem is a poem that describes um, a work of visual art, often a painting or um, a sculpture, um, in which there's often a kind of implied or sometimes explicit kind of rivalry or interest in the different um, uh, affordances, to use a word of our time, that Mm -hmm. um, poetry and visual arts have and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, But what makes it so there are scholar poems that describe paintings, but I think you mean something more than that, which is that it's as though Schuyler is describing a painting. Have I got this right, Eric? It's as though Schuyler is describing a painting, even when what he's describing is what he sees out the window. It's a composition of the ordinary and the everyday. Um, you know, he was asked, cause of course, you know, the New York school really comes from the, the, the painters and then the poets have to respond to it. And this, this poem, you know, February appeared in a famous anthology edited by Donald Allen, later O'Hara's mm-hmm. editor and other great writers. And it was one of only four poems published in that grouping. And then along with that, Allen really, hectored people to write to give him prose kind of manifesto bits. And so O'Hara, again, Schuyler's roommate, when he's writing this, gives him his famous personism essay. I think mm-hmm. that's when that comes out. Yeah. And and Schuyler writes this Poets and Painters Overture, I think he calls it. And he begins by saying, basically, if you're living in New York, you know, you exist in this uh, sort of uh, a crash of surf in which we all scramble, he says. And that's the painters of the day, the abstract expressionists, the you know mm-hmm. New York school painters. I think Schuyler writes Ekphrasis without even necessarily looking at a framed painting and is thinking about composition in terms of the unit of the day. He's a very diurnal poet. Yeah. Again, in that regard, like Wordsworth um, rolled round an earth's diurnal course. Yeah. Um, and without ever seeking stasis or anything, I think he's writing ekphrasis without putting a frame on reality first. Huh. Um, so, you know, poetry is always trying to describe like what feeling is like, what reality is like, you know, it's, it's, it's really the least like gussied up sophisticated way to talk about poetry. And I think Schuyler celebrated rightly for kind of two reasons that go into that one he he does seem to really convey in a kind of just rightness for those that enjoy his poetry, what a thing is like. Yeah. Um, and that could get kind of philosophical and out of hand and hard to pin down, but then he's always also indicating what it is, yeah. things as they are. And it's the play of those two things. One that seems super literal and just kind of pointing to it, indicating uh, that the world yeah. is there, that it is, that we should attend to it. And the other evoking what it's like um yeah and then and then that's the end of the poem there's no frame around the it's yeah you know so so in a painting the it's is just a painting and no matter how complex it is you can frame it but there's no frame around the it's in a Schuyler poem but okay so put it put a pin in that for a second because i want to i i, I want to conclude our discussion by talking about the the those last four lines um 
of the poem that all begin with the word it's it apostrophe s um but before we get there let me just sort of you know i don't know make an observation or ask you a question about something you said just that well if i'm a poet and i'm describing a painting or i'm describing and let's say it's um a figurative painting it's a representational painting mm-hmm. it's i'm i'm um you know, and I'm, and I'm describing the scene that's depicted in it. Well, in one sense, I can, I can describe the, um, the landscape and the figures I see in the painting and the, or if it's a still life, I can describe the pear and the skull and the whatever else it is. Right. <laughs> but it's, but also everything I'm describing is oil paint. Mm-hmm. or whatever or whatever the medium is right mm-hmm. which means that even if in the painting i've got um you know a piece of fruit and a bit of sky out the window they're made of the same stuff you know nice. and somehow that's yeah. um that flattens the kind of ontological hierarchy or the 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 difference you know the the differences um mm-hmm. in the in the things that are being represented so if mm-hmm. i'm if i'm a poet now like schuyler maybe he's sort of an ekphrastic poet even when i'm not describing a painting then maybe that's just another way of dis- describing what we were talking about earlier which is his kind of muted version of what figurative language is doing that when one thing is like another thing it's not it's not pulling something in from a separate realm it's just kind of um it's somehow letting those two things exist together in the same space which is the space of the poem you know or the space of the um the image that Skylar has in mind that the poem is then recording or um describing um but it's already been kind of flattened for him in his mind or something usefully i don't mean flattened in a kind of pejorative sense i mean like it's been yeah it's it's all it's all fit together you know how it all works in together you know yeah i think there are a variety of ways to to go with that the formal one would be to say it all comes together in a poem you know phenomenological ones could kind of just say it all comes together like as you pointed out earlier with the kind of confirmation or configuration of Mm -hmm. of like the the perceiver you know and and um but yes, I, I agree. And I guess I'm going all Stevens in this reading of the poem, but like this thing that you said about the, the, the paint, you know, uh, the technique, the, the, but the paint is, is what Stevens would call the basic slate, the universal hue, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, representation doesn't change the level of that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, I think this, this poem uh, gets closer to that still life composition, certainly. Um, but still escapes it. And the it's, I think, you know, it suggests that uh, yeah, kind so of wait. stuttering right. and a kind of escape uh, of the closure of composition as he tries to get at the thing. It's getting grayer and gold and chilly. Two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips. It's the shape of a tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. 
it's a day like any other. Um, yeah, help us um, notice, Eric, what you're noticing in those it's's. Oh, gosh. <laughs> it's something to do with what you've written about as like, um, and I know this is in part an idea that you're developing from someone whom we named at the beginning of this My teacher episode, your teacher, Paul Fry, something to do with the, um, a kind of poetry or a mode that poetry can have. That's about <clears throat> indication, um, uh, or something Paul Fry, um, calls the ostensive moment in poetry. So mm -hmm. I remember listening to, to Paul talk about the ostensive moment, you know, when I was in grad school and I remember sometimes thinking, Oh my God, this is exactly what I'm interested in. It's so perfect. And then I remember there being other times where I felt totally flummoxed and like, I didn't <laughs> yeah, get yeah, it. Yeah. I didn't yeah. get it. I think the flailing is internal so, to the understanding. So can you help us at the end of this conversation on, mm -hmm. you know, maybe using these lines as an occasion because I think you're interested in them for some of the same reason I am. And actually I just want, I'm, I'm sort of stalling here to give you a chance to, to think about your line of attack, but also I just want to say this. I've been wanting to say it. Um, like I said, I fell for Skylar pretty hard. Maybe I time it. It feels to me like it happened right when the pandemic started. Hmm. Like that's when I really kind of um, went all in hmm. and um, maybe that's not quite right, but anyway, that's my memory of it now. And, um, and, and it's hard for me to say, it has been hard for me to say sometimes like w to explain to somebody else what it is I love like I feel, I find that more than with other poems I love, what I want to do is just read a Schuyler poem to someone and say, like, point at it and say, <laughs> you know, yeah, that's it. And and I and it's so I'm not sure how eloquent I can be about right. what it is in this poem. But maybe this that, isn't an that's sort poem, of the though. point. Yeah, triple C, 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 C. You know, yeah. three three of those in a row hasn't been good poetry since Alexander Pope. I mean, I get the idea that he likes, uh, that's funny. I get the idea that he likes the way tulip sounds when he says it, you know, <laughs> and that it has something to do with his mouth. I think he know? likes the turger in the you know, tulip stems are really something, right? Like yeah. they're not only green, they are upright. Um, tulips, <laughs> tulips. Tulips, uh, that's nice. yeah. yeah. Or, yeah. Um, you know, uh like I've had this theory, you know, about him to life, which is this long poem that I, that I love and that you, you I know you love. Um, it's a poem that sort of narrates the progress of spring, um, mm -hmm. as he walks Ends around. Ends in May. Yeah. Begins in March. Then it's in May. May. May mutters, why ask questions right. or what are the questions, the questions you wish to, wish to ask? ask? Yeah. Um, so it's almost him to life season, everyone, but, um, not quite yet but I I've had this theory that he likes the way the word for Scythia sounds when he says it. And so he <laughs> wants to get it into poems, you know? Um, but okay. So I've stalled long enough. What's, <laughs> what's going on with those final four. Yeah. And what does it have to do with Schuyler's interest or maybe that's the wrong word, but his, 
tendency to yeah. for poetry to be indicative um and what does any of that have to do with this idea of the ostensive moment i will try to say poetry. something on say that something keeping in mind that. that scott that skylar i think is is doing it but i should give evidence for that you know i want to rest with the poem so so paul fry my you know my mentor um in 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 yours and your teacher, you know, I think in ways that yeah. uh, percolate through too, defines uh, the ostensive moment in his book, A Defensive Poetry from the 1990s, as the indicative gesture, so indicating toward reality, which precedes and underlies the construction of meaning. So it's not saying language can be meaning free, but that there's this uh, gesture that. I agree. You kind of only have to get through often through befuddlement and excessive labor that can show indication. Um, th- and it's a know, moment that precedes that, that. In other words, like meaning is going to happen. In right. the, not in the temporal sense. Right. It's, you know, Paul's careful to say it's actually kind of a decadent, I- I'm tempted to say kind of queer, wonderfully belated, rich moment that we might associate more with decadence than with, mm-hmm. you know, origins or anything like that. I think that's a good way to start, but like, but it's a moment in the philosophical sense, right? That, um, what does that that mean? A moment in the prior to the construction of meaning, um, it shows, like you said, the, 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 the availability of language, the materiality of language, the co-presence of the human and their language, um, maybe the two lips, these affordances Mm -hmm. that sort of make us, um, beings that can, can, uh, reveal, not meaning, but our being here mm. in language, right? Um, and I mean, again, that's what I would throw back to the image of the, the woman. Like, it's not so much the primacy of meaning, but the being there together. So the it's, uh, <laughs> it's mm-hmm. the barest of subject verb, right? It's, it is the copula. It is, you know, just it is. So there's no figuration at all. And yet you feel like to read that, he's mm-hmm. bringing in very strong metaphor or something. But the grammar is just, you know, pure statement. Um, you know, it's it, it's it's the Ilya in you know French. It's the thing mm. Beckett gets at when he says, "What is it at the end of the unnameable? Like, it is midnight. It is raining. It is not midnight." You know, like mm. he's 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 really playing with that basic conjunction of the sentence. Is um, there some idiomatic sense in which what he's doing in that in that f- those final four lines is that there's like a kind of implied um thought that precedes them which is I don't know I'm too tired right now to put it eloquently how? but something like like this is amazing what's amazing about it I'll tell you it's yeah. this it's this it's this It is that because the part we haven't talked about and I haven't seen other people talk about it exactly is the how I can't get over how it all works in together. Mm. You know, so the, the how is the whatever interrogative adverb or whatever how is that would convey the the work of how it all works in together, you know? And this is mm-hmm. kind of yeah, picking up on that, I think. Um how does it all work in together? I'll tell you how. It's the yellow inside the it's the yellow dust inside the tulips. I mean, maybe. As, yeah, the list isn't right. uh, determinative, right? It, it doesn't add up as in a recipe. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, that's why I think it's so important that all the things are so different. Yellow dust, it's interesting that it's dust and not pollen. It's not right. that regenerative. Right. Shape, a totally different kind of order of thing, you know? 
if you're Plato, you don't like to put dust next to shape and build that. Huh. Um, it's the water that lies in the drinking glass the tulips are in. And right. that kind of takes the drinking glass from like some, I don't know, more privileged container to just this contingent thing the tulips are in, right? Yeah. Um, and it's then been it's repurposed. Yeah. And then it's this category which, you know, it's the day, the category of, of the diurnal, the quotidian, mm-hmm. um, you know, of, uh, of the weather, of time. And I, I did read, I think that um, in his blog, uh, Epstein points this out, that like the, the poem came to Schuyler under the title of A Day Like Any Other. Right. So had he titled it that, this would be the moment where the kind of ranger of that kind of comes through and February ends and whether it's the 28th or the 29th, it's a day like any other. Well, and it occurs to me also that if at the beginning of the sort of um, implied articulating of this poem, it's 5 p.m., that maybe by the end of it, it's not quite the day anymore. (laughs) It's evening now or something. Yeah, no, that's right. Um, That's right. All right, Eric, this has been such a fun, um, enlivening, and beautiful conversation for me, and I hope for other people too. And I, and I think one thing that I would appreciate hearing just before we finish, unless you have any last notes you want to offer before we get here, is um, to hear the poem one more time. I won't interrupt, even though I'll want to and say, oh, that's great. <laughs> um, to hear the poem one more time. Maybe you can read it to us this time as a way to say goodbye. I would be honored to, glad to. I'm changing to my clean copy. (laughs) February. A chimney breathing a little smoke. The sun I can't see making a bit of pink I can't quite see in the blue. The pink of five tulips at 5 p.m. on the day before March 1st. The green of the tulip stems and leaves like something I can't remember. Finding a jack in the pulpit a long time ago and far away. Why, it was December then, and the sun was on the sea by the temples we'd gone to see. One green wave moved in the violet sea like the UN building on big evenings, green and wet, while the sky turns violet. A few almond trees at a few flowers, like a few snowflakes, out of the blue-looking pink in the light, a gray hush in which the boxy trucks roll up Second Avenue into the sky. They're just going over the hill. The green leaves of the tulips on my desk like grass light on flesh and a green copper steeple and streaks of cloud beginning to glow. I can't get over how it all works in together like a woman who just came to her window and stands there filling it, jogging her baby in her arms. She's so far off. Is it the light that makes the baby pink? I can see the little fists and the rocking horse motion of her breasts. It's getting grayer and gold and chilly. Two dog-sized lions face each other at the corners of a roof. It's the yellow dust inside the tulips. It's the shape of a tulip. It's the water in the drinking glass the tulips are in. It's a day like any other.
Well, Eric Lindstrom, thank you so much. It was a a real pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, listeners, for making it with us. Yeah, I'm trucking through. I have no idea. It's like a class of mine. It's 50% over. (laughs) I have no idea. Um, I have to say what we sound like, how, how punch drunk we might sound at this hour. It's now, it's after midnight. <laughs> and um, I hope if nothing else, um, that what's audible to the rest of you is how much we love this poem and um, this poet and talking to each other. Uh, thank you all very much, everyone. Be well, and we'll have another episode for you soon.